Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Nick Clark, founder and CEO of Greywing, a maritime operations platform that's raised $2.5 million in funding. Nick, thanks for chatting with me today. Good to see you, Brett. How are things? Yeah, all good on my end. Excited to chat with you. Yeah, wicked. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm excited because when I saw it was about uh, categories, that's the thing that really triggered me to jump on. So uh, I'm excited to get into it. Nice. Excited to have you here. So before we begin talking about what you're building at Greywing, let's start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background. Yeah, sure. So um, I'm Nick. I'm the CEO of Greywing. You know, I'm one of the co-founders. My other co-founder is uh, Rishi Olakul, who's our CTO. And from my perspective, I'm basically English, although I've got an Australian passport. I used to be in the British military. And, you know, when I left the military, I met this guy in a bar and he said, well, I need some guys to help me protect ships from piracy. So, um, you know, a couple of months later, I found myself on a ship in the Indian Ocean, you know, kind of sailing past Somalia. You know, not really getting into a gunfight, but we definitely got approached by Somali pirates. So, um, but we had really clear escalation of force measures to kind of give the pirates a chance to run away. So, if the pirates would come towards the boat, you know, we'd kind of get the weapons out, we'd put them above our heads. And then the pirates would be like, oh, okay, there's some weapons, let's back away. And then it was just kind of like that, as we'd take a vessel from Suez down through the Red Sea, through the Gulf of Aden, and across to Sri Lanka. So that kind of got me into the maritime industry in a pretty unusual way, if you like. And then after that, I started my own security company. So yeah, we ended up, uh, you know, I had to buy some weapons, which was a funny one because uh, to buy the weapons, I actually called the police in the UK and said, um, cool, so I need to buy some semi-automatic assault rifles. Uh, do you know who I can buy them from legally? And the police put me in touch with um, a local arms dealer who they regulated. And so anyway, that's a whole other story, but I did that for a few years. We kind of worked on all kinds of ships from product tankers to bulk carriers to offshore floating production and storage vessels. So, you know, kind of assets worth, you know, about $600 million, as well as uh, a lot of super yachts, you know, which were just owned by really rich people who I never met because I was always working with one of their people. So, yeah, we kind of... um you know, I was running this maritime security company. I remember reading this book called Wikonomics, you know, probably years and years and years ago. And then actually, as I was going through the early stages of this business around 2013, I think they opened up a book came out called The Launchpad, which was on Y Combinator. And I remember reading it thinking, you know, how can we turn this business into a digital business or a digital platform? And, you know, so that had always been on my mind since then. But as you know, time went on, we're in this traditional business. We're a bit like an arms dealer and a travel agent. You know, we're sending the guys out, we're sending the weapons out, we're matching the two up, they're getting on a vessel, they're doing a transit, they're getting off at the other end. We were kind of like the my little pony, I would say, of of maritime security companies because we never used force. You know, we had a really clear escalation of force procedure, which always gave the pirates time to turn around, if you like, and, and decide to come back another day. But what I found was that industry began to get commoditized. So, you know, the first job we did was, uh, I think, $120,000 for a 13-day trip. And, you know, now if you were to get the same service from a maritime security company, the price has been commoditized down to about 
three to five thousand dollars. So margins got really squeezed out of that business, and I was like, I need to, I need to find something else, and that's what led me to come to Singapore to look into setting up a, a digital platform. Very cool. So I have to ask, what's the craziest story you have at uh, at C? Craziest story I have at C. Do you know what? I think I'm I'm really going to struggle because the craziest story really is when um, you know we got approached by pirates. So I was on the uh, on the bridge of the ship, and uh, you know I'm there. We've got a couple of Filipino lookouts who are the crew members mm-hmm. because they spend so much time at sea. Their eyesight is incredible. You know, so this Filipino guy spots this. Um, you know, we're in the Red Sea around 15 degrees north, heading uh, heading south. And this Filipino guy uh, spots this this skiff, you know, a couple of miles away. And the interesting thing about this skiff, which is just a small maritime craft, a bit like a speedboat, really, is that there's a lot of fishermen in the Red Sea. And, you know, they're kind of hanging around the vessels to get the fish that are thrown up by the weight. And, you know, specifically for this one, it didn't have an awning. So not, most of them have got some kind of awning going across the vessel to provide shade because it's... I mean, it's literally, you know, right next to Saudi Arabia and Yemen, so it's pretty hot. And this vessel just had like about eight to ten guys just mm-hmm. sat there, kind of doing nothing. And so it was a bit suspect. So um, you know, the other guys were downstairs in the galley getting lunch. And so I, I gave them a quick call and said, um, yeah, you might want to come up. And then by the time they came up, I'd already put on my body armor, you know, and helmet, picked up my weapon, gone onto the monkey deck, which is the kind of the deck around the bridge at the top of the vessel or the bridge wings. And um, yeah, so there I am. And the team leader takes control. So he was a Royal Marines corporal, super professional guy. I was kind of like maybe hoping a little bit we might get into some kind of firefight. And then, um, you know, he kind of calmed everything down, put us out on the bridge. We all put our weapons above our heads. So there was a really clear indication to the pirates that, uh, you know, there's a security team on board. And uh, the way it went down is these guys were probably about three cables, maybe about 500 meters away from the vessel. They were kind of accelerating, coming towards us. So the, the pattern of where they were was that there were now two vessels or two skiffs ahead of us, maybe about a mile away. There was a, another skiff that was behind us. It was beginning to kind of bear down on us, if you like. And once they saw the weapons, they slowed down, de-escalated, kind of held back a bit. And, uh, you know, I think ultimately what they were trying to do was have one skiff come at us from aft and a couple of skiffs forward. And they were just trying to pull us into a trap where they could all board us. And, uh, yeah, so all kind of, you know, these guys like followed us for probably, you know, an hour or so. And, you know, I think they were coming and ahhing about whether they wanted to take us on. And then uh, that was it. They kind of fell away, peeled off. And, uh, you know, no rounds were fired. Nothing happened. And uh, it was a great demonstration, you know, for me, from a professional operator about how to de-escalate a situation, you know, and, and the, the only way that you can ever make sure no one's going to get hurt is to make sure that people don't start pulling the trigger. So it was was a great experience from that perspective. And, you know, just to kind of round off that story, you know, at the time, I think it was 2011, you know, piracy, you know, vessels getting pirated every other week. It was pretty common. And, you know, so we passed, you know, those pirates and they peeled off. And then about three hours later, we could hear on Channel 16 um, another vessel getting pirated by the same team. So, you know, having an armed security team on board at that time was really the difference between do the pirates get on board your vessel, take you hostage and take you back to Somalia, or do they leave you alone? Wow, that's insane. And is that still 
a problem today with piracy. I feel like all I know about the space is everything I learned from that movie, uh, Captain Phillips. Uh, is it still a thing? Is it still a problem? Do you know what? They, so they had a high-risk area, which is um, set up by Lloyd's War Risk Committee, which is kind of where you have to pay additional insurance premiums to travel in that area. Mm-hmm. And so there's always been the Indian Ocean high-risk area since I started in the industry around 2011, I came into the industry. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're just about to uh, repeal it or eliminate that higher scare at the end of this year. So, you know, ostensibly from a risk perspective, at least according to Lloyd's War Risk Committee, the mm-hmm. high-risk area is going to be removed. So there's no longer an elevated threat from piracy that can't be diminished by using best management practice. So I think uh, piracy probably has come to an end. But like many of these things, you know, we've seen piracy diminish in the Gulf of Guinea, but then there's been resurgence and it might go quiet for a few years, but it comes back. And so it's less about, you know, is the piracy gone? It's more about the geographic and economic conditions in that specific environment are permissive for piracy. And so the economic conditions in Somalia and Nigeria are probably pretty similar Mm -hmm. from the perspective that, you know, there's um, the people that are extremely poor. Well, not in all cases, actually, in Nigeria, but you know, there's limited opportunity to earn money in, in those regions. And then geographically, you know, for Somalia and Yemen, they've got this choke point, the Babel Mendep, where vessels have to come through that area. So they can benefit from that geographic terrain by targeting the vessels that come through that area. And in the case of Nigeria, because it's such an oil-rich country, there's always high-value targets, if you like, in the terms of offshore oil and gas exploration platforms and oil and gas tankers that are coming in and out of the country, mm-hmm. which could provide a lot of opportunity for kidnap and ransom. Got it. Interesting. Now let's switch gears a bit. Let's talk about Greywing and, and what you're doing there. So in simple terms, what does the company do? Greywing's a digital platform and we automate anything that gets on or off a vessel, excluding cargo. And right now we're focused on crew changes. So I think we came into this industry, and the truth is, we originally built a platform to optimize where and when a customer could source maritime security services and, you know, so get a gunboat to protect your vessel in Nigeria. And what we found was COVID hit, and we could replace the intelligence on piracy with intelligence on where crew changes could happen. Mm. And so what that meant was that all of the ports were locked down. We couldn't do crew changes. There were very few locations where you could achieve a crew change. And, you know, from our perspective as a business model, piracy is one of those things that's restricted to two specific areas, whereas crew changes happen every week or, well, maybe certainly every month on every vessel globally. Mm-hmm. So from a market perspective, it was a much better place for us to play because it was universal to all shipping. Whereas the piracy was just limited to vessels that are trading in and out of Nigeria or in and out of uh, the Somali Indian Ocean. Mm -hmm. So what happened was, you know, we kind of started delivering intelligence on where and when someone could do a crew change. We put a video on YouTube. We got approached by a client. The client, you know, or prospect at the time said, we'd like you to plug into our crewing software so that we can see where our crew are, who's on board each vessel. And then we signed them up. And then we went to see another prospective customer and they said, well, this is great. You know, I can see where my crew are. I can see them on the vessel. I can see the port state restrictions. I can see where and when I can theoretically do a crew change. But if I cannot see whether I can get a flight, then this platform is not useful for me. And so 
that's really been the structure of what we've discovered in the maritime industry is that we came in with a platform that solved a specific problem that users had around how, where and when they could affect a crew change. And then they started introducing other problems to us. Like, can I get a flight? You know, can you integrate with my board agents? Can you integrate with uh, my voyage management system? And so what we now have is a platform that pulls in all of the data from our customers around where a vessel is, where it's going, who's on board, who needs to get on, and who needs to get off. And then we pull in all of the vendors or supply chain that facilitate that process. Mm-hmm. So it seems like a really simple thing. I mean, you know, automating things that get on or off a vessel. And I suppose right now, you know, we're focused on crew changes because there's a critical requirement there. And also crew changes are probably the hardest item to move on or off a vessel because you're dealing with humans. And all of the problems that we humans bring to any situation, mm-hmm. whereas the same methodology and from you know how we look at it can be applied to anything else that's getting on or off a vessel excluding the cargo so we think about things like spare parts we think about things like fuel we think about things like lubricants ship stores and so you know kind of hidden in the operational expenses for vessels is about four to five hundred billion dollars of owners expenses that are happening on an annual basis where you know they've got to buy this stuff so you know if you think about a car you know you're operating your car you know you've got to buy fuel for the car you've got to get it serviced you've got to fill up the oil you know you've got to buy snacks for your kids when you're traveling around like all of these things have to happen mm-hmm. and you know if you kind of think about you've got to take it in maybe for its annual you know service and if you think about a vessel a vessel is you know basically got the same requirements around compliance refueling food, maintenance, all of these things are exactly the same, except you take that asset and you kind of multiply the value. You know, if a car's like $100,000, and I definitely, I mean, I don't even own a car, but I definitely don't own a $100,000 car. But if you're looking at a car that's worth $100,000, you know, a vessel could be anything from, you know, 10 million to 100 million, 150 million. And so those OPEX transactions are many times greater And that's really where we come in to do the optimization. So in the same way that when you're driving your car, if you're really tight with money like I am, you might say, well, given my journey today, where's the most efficient gas station to, you know, fill up with gas? And you're going to pull in there. You're going to get your gas. It's going to be cheaper. You're going to save a bit of money. Everybody's happy. And it's exactly the same methodology that we have with vessels. You know, vessels are restricted in where they can go because they have to go where they're told by the person that hires them. So there's limited opportunity for them to say, let's go to the cheapest port. What they need to do is they need to look at the forthcoming three to five ports of call where they know they're going to go, look at every transaction that they need to do, whether it's um, spare parts, a crew change, uh, ship stores, fuel, lubricant, and decide where's the best place for us to do this transaction. And at the moment, that kind of calculation is done in a generally ad hoc manner. Some people don't even commercially consider the calculation because it's accepted that you do these operations where you can. You People aren't necessarily commercially looking at the problems, say, where's the most efficient place to do this transaction? 
Whereas with Greywing, you know, right now we can give you the next three to five ports of call. We can tell you the best vendor in those ports of call to work with. And you can compare between all five ports of call and say, okay, given that my vessel's got, you know, these forthcoming port calls coming out, which might be Singapore, Rotterdam, Houston, you know, wherever, where's the most efficient place to do this operation? And so that's the kind of coordination that we bring into the industry. And right now, like I said, we're focused on crew changes. Mm-hmm. But I think the next thing for us, and actually one of the things that we're doing with the Singapore Maritime Port Authority Smart Port Challenge is we're using that challenge, less of a kind of exercise to look at our existing product, which is crew changes, and more of an exercise to engage with industry and say, what's the next item that you'd like to automate putting on board a vessel? You know, what's the next transaction you'd like to automate? Is it spare parts, lubricants, fuel? Where's that biggest problem for you guys? And I'll finish with this. It's more efficient to do all of your transactions in the same place. So if you're pulling, you know, coming to port in Singapore, Mm -hmm. you want to do your crew changes, spare parts, refueling, you want to get everything done here. But it's just one of those things within the shipping industry that the person that's commercially managing the vessel might be in Connecticut. The person that is technically managing the vessel operationally might be in Hamburg. And the the crewing team could be split, I mean, literally across up to seven different countries. Because if your your crew come from seven different countries, you know, Philippines, India, Myanmar, you know, Ukraine, I'm struggling to come up with more countries, but you get my gist, then you need to liaise and coordinate with all of those entities in seven different countries. So you could have up to, you know, nine, 10 different offices globally coordinating on operations for one vessel. And that's where the utility comes from us. Got it. That makes sense. And who's that ideal customer today? And what's the general sentiment with these customers when it comes to technology? Are they resistant to technology? Are they open to experimenting with new technology? What are your thoughts there? I mean, I don't want to advertise on the podcast, but there's literally a podcast called, I think it's the Dinosaur Podcast. And it is on the maritime industry's approach to technology. Because I really feel like one of the great things about working in tech in the maritime industry Mm -hmm. is um, it's so resistant to change that you know if you punch through the wall, it's going to go great. No one comes to play here. You know, someone that worked at Oak Tree Capital told me that the maritime industry is where capital comes to die. So I think he'd previously worked at Oak Tree Capital, not currently, so that Oak Tree Capital don't sue us because we can afford that. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's the last industry that you want to come to do innovation, to do technology, because, you know, it's almost like there's a resistance in this industry. There's people around the edges trying to come in. Mm-hmm. And then you've got these, you know, large organizations that are just batting away innovation. And, you know, I've got to say, there are, of course, you know, some people that really adopt technology. And increasingly, we see people taking it on board. But um, there is this uh, approach where people just feel like if you don't have the experience, then um, you're unable to operate in this industry. And I think it's one of the challenges that people find operating in the shipping industry is, you know, there's certain experience that you gain by being offshore in the shipping industry and working on a vessel. But I think, you know, sometimes people conflate having that experience with having the right to operate in a shipping company. And I think it's something that, you know, we and, you know, some of our clients have come across where 
being offshore does give you great experience and great knowledge. But at the same time, you know, lots of people, including all of our developers who are able to look at these problems and solve them in a methodical way and to take into account the experience that people that have worked on vessels have. So, yeah, let me think about that. The industry, you know, they are trying to pull in innovation. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, when we were fundraising, I was speaking to the prime investor and he um, asked me for, a, you know, kind of cash flow forecast of how we were going to spend the money. And, um, you know, I gave him this cash flow forecast. He said, well, why are you paying these people so much money? And I said to him, well, I, you know, I've kind of taken the you know average salary that we'd have to pay a developer in Silicon Valley. And, you know, that's the basis on which I've costed this team because, you know, we're not going to be able to build technology without a team that you know, extremely good at building technology and that come from that top echelon of developers. Mm-hmm. And um, his response was, you know, really kind of telling for me about people within the maritime industry, which is they want things cheap. They don't want to pay people too much money. And, you know, the idea that people are coming in from a technical background, getting paid, you know, well to solve problems in the maritime industry is something that just doesn't quite sit right with them. And so, you know, when you've got an industry and when you've got maybe an ethic of paying people competitive salaries, and by competitive, I mean competitive for the business, not competitive for the employee Mm -hmm. and keeping them low, it doesn't bring in people that are capable of bringing innovation. So I suppose, you know, that's a, a long way around of saying they kind of want to invest, but, you know, they often shy away from investing the kinds of sums of money that you would have to, to bring in a developer who could really, you know, change the way that the industry works. Because the problem would be is that you'd have, you know, all these heads of innovation, you know, if they were to build a team internally in their businesses, they'd have to hire people that were kind of on the same money as them or even more to bring in developers that were worth their salt. So I think that's one of the things that militates against innovation in this industry is an unwillingness to spend money and to think for the long term. That makes sense. So how were you able then to convince these investors to you know, take that risk into the, uh, what did you say, the, the industry where capital goes to die? How were you able to convince them to give you two and a half million? Well, do you know what? I think it came down really to traction. You know, if I had to say, what have we done is we had good traction. You know, so we had customers using the platform. They were kind of like big brand names. They were really happy with it, you know, happy to give us references. So I think that, you know, at a seed stage business, basically, that's all you require to raise money if mm-hmm. you then also have a big enough total addressable market. Mm-hmm. And the total addressable market is, I mean, it is large. If I kind of think about, you know, the elements that go into crewing, you know, they're probably spending $6 billion on flights. They're spending about, you know, $75 billion on the seafarers' wages. They're spending $60 billion on ship stores. They're spending about $200 billion on fuel. And then I'm not sure how big spare parts are, but, you know, that's another multi-billion dollar market. And so you've got all these markets hidden in plain sight in an industry where there's no technology. And so what would you rather invest in? You know, would you rather go into an industry where it's hyper flooded with competition? Or would you rather bring a set of YC backed entrepreneurs with the associated talented tech team and, and engineering team into an industry where the competition isn't really there. You know, those opponents aren't really there. And in terms of coming across people that are doing similar things to us, you know, they're few and far between. 
And so I think if you can make it work in the maritime industry, and you know, it is an ongoing project, then there's a huge industry there, you know, to kind of be digitized. And, you know, they're resistant to digitization up until the point where all of the new people come in. I'm not sure which generation it is, but they'll all come in. They'll want digital tools. They won't want to have to call people up to do a deal or to send an email. They'll expect it to be digitized. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, Greywing delivers that. So, yeah, from an investor's perspective, why would I invest in Greywing? Two reasons, you know, team traction and, you know, the total addressable market. You can't ignore a market of this size, which is operating on a daily basis. And more importantly, you know, in a world with kind of geopolitical fractures, where am I going to put my money? You know, I'm going to put my money somewhere where it has to run. The shipping industry is going to be the the final thing that will break down before global collapse, because it literally feeds and enables the entire world to exist. So, you know, it's one of those things during COVID, you know, COVID really put us on the map because it introduced greater complexity into the shipping industry that you could only use technology to solve. You could not add more people to the problem to be able to solve it. It would just get harder. And that makes what we do extremely resilient. People have to have it. The vessels have to operate and they have to operate more efficiently. They have to operate in a more complex environment, particularly around decision making. Mm-hmm. They have to operate with you know multiple stakeholders who are geographically located and so that makes it challenging as well so i mean you know if you're looking for a dirty business with um dirty ships that aren't cool that you know don't look good on social media that um most people haven't heard of and most people maybe aren't interested in but they still expect you know that amazon prime to arrive on time then shipping's that business you know it's running 24 hours a day seven days a week 365 days a year and that's why it's a good investable business because it's never going away. Like, when is this business going to go away? And that's the other exciting thing about investing in shipping is, you know, I was at a uh, kind of event the other day and, uh, you know, one of the heads of innovation for a, a local company, he was like, look, shipping's not had its Kodak moment. You know, and the Kodak moment he's referring to is where Kodak invented, like, you know, the megapixel or digital camera. And then, you know, just didn't invest in it. And then somebody else picked it up and, and turned it into a, uh, you know, a global success and make Kodak irrelevant. And I think that's the thing that's coming in shipping. And that's why we're playing on this field, you know, because that's still there. You're probably going to struggle to come into social media and create a phenomenon, right? Mm-hmm. You know, TikTok is maybe a, a good example that you can still do great things. Mm-hmm. But um, within shipping, I feel like there's still a lot of easy targets in this market. And that's why it's a good place to play. That makes a lot of sense. And if we zoom out into the future here, and yeah, this will be our, the final question for today. If we zoom out into the future five years from now, what do you think Grey Wing is going to look like? I mean, it's difficult because it's tempting to compare it to other organizations, mm-hmm. but um, I'll, uh, I'll do my best not to do that. I would imagine that when you look at shipping, you know, our customers really are the owners of vessels because we save money on their transactions. And so people are managing the vessels, people are crewing the vessels, but really, the people that earn the money that get the benefit are the owners. Mm-hmm. And often owners might outsource these requirements to their managers, but then their managers kind of don't always get the best deals and they have to sometimes look for ways to earn money around the edges. This isn't true of all managers, it's just a generalization. And so from an owner's perspective, you've got this asset out there earning you money and you want to make sure 
that you're getting the best ROI that you can on it. And so what I would say Grey Wing's going to be in five years' time is as an owner, I'll be able to pull up you know, an app on my iPhone, see all of the transactions that are happening for that vessel that I'm paying for. That money is coming out of my pocket and see the level of optimization that I'm getting on each one. Because whilst we, the users of our product are managers and crewing operators and superintendents, the economic buyer and the person that's getting the advantage is the owner of the vessel. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really why we're in this marketplace is to support owners, to give them better return on investment and better control over the managers that they work with. Mm-hmm. And so in five years' time, Grey Wings that digital platform that sets things up for owners so that they can operate and manage their vessels in a clear-cut manner on an app on their phone. And I think if you're like, well, let's go off the chart. What are you doing in five years' time if you know this thing goes gangbusters? Then you're literally kind of buying and operating a vessel on your iPhone on an app. And maybe you're investing in a fraction of a vessel using some kind of crypto token. And maybe you're buying a fraction of that vessel and then you know, you're kind of watching it operate. Or maybe if you're liquid enough, you're buying an entire asset on your phone, assigning it to a crew manager and operating that vessel just within uh, a digital ecosystem that's built by Growing. Amazing. Well, Nick, this has been so much fun. I've really enjoyed hearing about what you're building and your background. That's all we're going to have time to cover for today. If people want to follow along with your journey, where's the best place for them to go? Probably the best place for me is LinkedIn. So Nick Clark, Greywing on LinkedIn, just uh, follow me there because that's pretty much where I post most of my content because we're still stuck in um, Twitter. Not so many people are on Twitter in the maritime industry. Let's, let's put it that way. <laughs> I can imagine. Amazing, Nick. Well, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it and look forward to seeing you execute on this vision. Yeah, wicked, Brett. Thanks for setting this up, mate. Have, have a great day. Yeah, and you as well.